Welcome to USC Week. It's Irish Illustrated Insider, Thursday, October 21st. I'm Tim Priester with Tim O'Malley from Irish Illustrated. Pete Sampson from The Athletic joins us. And for the third or fourth time, we'll be previewing Notre Dame versus USC. We had a little extra time with a bye week, but it's finally here, or the last podcast before the game on Saturday night at 7.30. And guys, just some of your thoughts about uh, USC, Notre Dame, the matchup, some advantages that you think uh, Notre Dame has and, and USC as well. well. I just don't think USC is as stout on the defensive line or the front seven is, I think, sort of what you stereotypically think. Um, so it's kind of one of those Notre Dame has some clear weaknesses on the offensive line, but I don't think that USC necessarily has the strength to exploit it, even with Drake Jackson um, at probably a little bit less than 100%. So I'd, it's kind of one of those games people ask uh, me, and I'm sure they ask USC, like, who do you think should start a quarterback? And, like, this is this is a week where I think it's pretty easy to argue for Jack Cohn because I, I think there is going to be a cleaner pocket than normal. Um, and I think that USC secondary is no great shakes either. So it, um, I, I think this could be kind of a – it may look like a breakout performance for Notre Dame's offense on Saturday night, but you certainly have to factor in USC's defense to that. I think you make a good point about Cohn. Um, the, all this self-scouting they did, no matter how many questions we ask about self-scouting, it better have revolved around, Jack, this is when you're good. Three steps, you get rid of the ball. You're getting rid of the ball here. You're getting rid of the ball there. That's the self-scouting that's the most important thing. And now, and you know, in fairness to him, he never, he did not trust his protections, I'm sure. He's going to have to learn a little bit. But, I mean, it, they're going to there, – there's going to be some times with Joe Alton, an 18-year-old, and Andrew Christophic's the first time. Sure. There's they're certainly not going to be finished product there. But I, I agree with you that they could attack USC. And the preseason, this was my game for uh, the highest scoring game of the year. Now they're not going to – I don't think they're going to both get to the Florida State level because that went a little off the rails. But I, I think this will be the second highest scoring game of the year. I think the USC defensive front seven is the worst that it's been at USC in, I don't know, pre-Pete Carroll. I, 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 well, it would have to be because it's not yeah, – right. it yeah. certainly wasn't no. during. And, yeah. once, and once Carroll came in as a head coach and established themselves as, as a powerhouse, and then even in the years after that, they were able to recruit. Their recruiting has just has gone downhill, and I don't – you know, I'm not trying to instigate anything. I just, I seriously, I think it's the least held defensive front seven at USC in in 20 years, pretty much. So now the 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 issue here is that does Notre Dame have the offense to take advantage of that? And 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 there was a bit of an uptick against Virginia Tech, and I agree with the notion that this is absolutely the 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 opponent that you want Jack Cohn as your quarterback. But because you haven't run successfully without Butner at the quarterback position, you need Butner to do that. And I think if he makes, like I said this earlier in the week, if he makes good decisions on the read option, USC bites at everything. They don't want to contain. They don't have time for contain. They're going to chase the football. So I think if Butner's making some good reads, uh, in addition to Cone being able to have success throwing against that secondary, this should be, I agree, a very high-scoring game and, and one of Notre Dame's most productive offensive performances of the season. You know, Tim, to your point, I think it could be time now after the bye week, after this game, we can ask Brian Kelly. If USC can, crashes down and destroys Notre Dame's running game with Cone, but Tyler Buckner has an 80-yard day and Notre Dame runs for 130 yards with Buckner at quarterback, 
is there any way of tweaking how Jack Cohn and Notre Dame approach the running game? I know it's easy for us to say, don't run the read option, but it's pretty ingrained into what they, right? There's got to yeah. be something. There's got to be yeah, something think, off of it where I, Jack Cohn isn't just handing it off. Well, I would agree. And I think that, you know, if you establish some things through the passing game on first down, I mean, we always talk about if you're in second and five, third and two, you've got more from which to choose from, um, in, including within the running game. Now, Chris Tyree, I didn't expect to hear the information on Chris Tyree today from Brian Kelly because he made it sound like last week that he was fine and ready to roll. And it does not sound that that way at all right now. So we're going to see Logan Diggs, I'm sure. Sebo Flemister, Tim, you asked about him, and he's back into play. It just doesn't sound real promising with Chris Tyree, but you still have you have Kyron Williams and Logan Diggs certainly showed that the moment was not too big for him at Virginia Tech. And we know that Flemister, although he hasn't played this year, is capable of of doing some good some good things in a running game as a power running back. Yeah, it's like with Ty or with Kyron Williams, we're not talking about like Josh Adams workload here. You know, it's like he's getting 17, 18 carries per game. Could he go up to 23, 24 for a week? Yeah, I think I'd be fine. Um, you know, like Logan Diggs has showed some good things at Virginia Tech. You're not asking him to do a ton. Um, I think probably where that hurts you more than anything is like the two back sets, right? Like that's yeah. less of a thing you can do. And yeah. I mean, we saw how important that was at Virginia Tech. Like they had to make up a two point conversion play because the ones they had installed were two back sets and Tyree and Kyron Williams weren't available. So it's how much that's Pete, it's tricky. Yeah. Pete, did you track um, how often, I know Diggs didn't play a ton, but how often Diggs and Williams were in the, in the lineup at the same time? No, I did not. I didn't track that. I just, you know, I sort of just tracked how often they run a two back set without identifying who the okay. two backs actually so are. Did you get but, a t- well, I was just going to no, say but, Williams, Williams 10 yard touchdown run was two back set yeah. with Diggs and Williams. Okay. And it's already mitigated because uh, Williams had to sit out. Remember, he got hurt and Diggs played for Williams yeah. in that situation. So there was no way of having them both out there. I think the concern for Diggs and Sebo is um, ball security for Sebo for his first game and uh, Diggs ball security because he's never had people ripping at the ball yeah. like this before. But that's, you know, Notre Dame's coaches would know a heck of a lot more about their ball security issues or non-issues than just the speculation of human nature. Notre Dame's quarterback room uh, changed this week. Brendan Clark, or, or was it Monday that Brian Kelly was talking about getting him more involved in, in things and getting him up to speed? And then within 48 hours, Brendan Clark is announcing yeah. that he's he's leaving Notre Dame. And you, I mean, you certainly can't blame him in the situation. He knows Angeli's coming in. He knows they're recruiting Dante Moore. He knows that Walker Howard is, is visiting this weekend, the LSU commitment. So, I mean, the writing is on the wall, and he's coming back from a – from a knee injury, but it leaves them in a, you know, in a situation. I think we have a question about how they handled the uh, scout team in, in the second segment. We'll deal with that then, but uh, it's a, it's a much, it's a smaller room now. Um, and, but you, you certainly can't blame Brendan Clark for, for looking elsewhere. I have uh, a little, I've always surprised when guys leave mid season though. Yeah. Um, I don't understand what purpose that like, serves exactly. If you're running scout team, you know, getting work, essentially practicing football so you can get better at football. So when you go somewhere else, you're ready to play football. Um, that I don't, I, I just won't ever understand that. Um, but I, I completely understand why he left. 
or would would plan to leave after the season. Right. Funny, Pete and I were walking out, and we got this half ride. I guess we both said, "Well, that's for that comment was so Brendan Clark can have some some film for transferring later, and they're doing him a solid by getting him out there in a bye week and everything." And then all of a sudden, if that's true, he didn't do that much of a solid by leaving in the middle of the year. So <laughs> what uh, I had heard Monday night. Uh, a source texted me that Brendan Clark was leaving and then he had met with the coaches that morning. So presumably when we talked to Brian Kelly, he already knew Brendan Clark was leaving, which may be why he was thinking about Brendan Clark. Yeah. Which is probably brought him up. And that's, (laughs) that's, that's that's rough. That's, that's tough, man. That's, but yeah, you can't nowadays, a lot of people leave mid season too. It's not as shocking as it was. It's certainly not as shocking for Brendan Clark. Maybe he doesn't want to get hurt on scout team. He's going to get hit right on scout team. Yeah. That's reasonable. You don't need to get hurt if you're going somewhere else to play after two years. Yeah, let's wrap up segment one. Uh, go go over real quickly uh, the injury situation. Brian Kelly talked about Michael Mayer's back in the starting lineup. Tyler Buckner's ready to roll. That's when he mentioned Tyree, which was a little bit surprising to me. And it's surprising to hear that Jacob Lacey might play. I doubt very much whether that's the case, but that he actually has practice this week, which is which I think that in itself is a – a little bit surprising, but their tight end situation going into this game. It's with, with Mitchell Evans not being able to play in the first half, they have two tight ends to play. And Michael Mayer and George Takis came wrong, had the knee injury and Kevin Ballman's not ready to go. So they're, they're pretty light uh, at at that position. Uh, But, but otherwise in, in pretty good uh, physical shape heading into this game. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that. So say Tyree doesn't go and, you know, Estime hasn't played yet. So he's not obviously getting a ton of varsity reps in practice. They have five wide receivers, scholarship, three running backs and two tight ends for the first half in this game. That's it. Uh, how is Matt, it? Matt, Matt Salerno is the backup to Avery Davis right now. That's right. Okay. The, the seventh guy is not going to play. He didn't travel. I mean, they're certainly not playing Thomas now, right? It's they have five scholarship wide receivers. Yeah, Styles, yeah. Colsey, Austin, Davis, Lindsey. You are correct. Yeah. Lawrence Keys, of course, gone. Um, Joe Wilkins out for the season. Man, you got to start. You got to play Colsey and Styles more, don't you? Yeah, you do absolutely do. They, they actually almost, put Salerno on there. It's almost like yeah. Xavier Watts could have helped at receiver. Yeah, he could have. But you know what? I like to talk about him. I mean, maybe they're you know hopefully every they're, position now that they're grooming him to be a safety next year. And, yeah, and maybe yeah, I like that. Nickel I like that situations because they're they're absolutely going to need somebody to emerge next year and next to Kyle Hamilton and, uh, when he comes back for his senior. Yeah, season, right. right. Yeah. yeah, right. He just thought that he would. Yeah, you know, I'm not quite ready for the NFL. I'm gonna stick her out for my senior year. Segment two coming coming up, burning up the boards. The Indiana Whiskey Company in South Bend, Indiana, delivers great whiskey at honest prices. Founded in 2011 by Notre Dame alumni and military veterans, the company set out to prove that Indiana has everything needed to make a world-class whiskey. The Indiana Whiskey Company has been producing whiskey, and only whiskey, for eight years running, and they want you to know they're getting pretty good at it. If you are in town for a game, visit the distillery for some pre-game cocktails and a bottle of whiskey for your tailgate. For more information, go to inwhiskey.com. Cheers, and go Irish! We are back with segment two, burning up the boards. First question from not J to fell one. What matchups can Notre Dame take advantage of against USC and what mismatches favor USC? Well, you know, if Notre Dame's red zone defense moves forward like it did against Virginia Tech when they were four for four touchdowns, USC's horrible defensively in the red zone. Uh, they Opponents have made 
23 penetrations and they've scored 17 touchdowns against them. That's, that's ridiculously bad. And, and yet they're, you know, top 35 and third down defense, which I don't, I don't see the correlation. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's one. And I just think, I just think that Jack Cohn can have a big day. And I, and I think Tyler Butner can be effective. What's Notre Dame's highest output in total yards this year, whatever it is, I think they can exceed it against USC. It had to be Florida State. Yeah, it was. I'm yep, sure it was yep. Florida State. It was. It, yep. it was in the 400s. It yes. wasn't 500, but. No, you're think, right. It was actually lower than you would have thought because they had that yeah. kind of a dead quarter. Fourth quarter was nothing, so that would be shocking that they would yeah. have had a dead quarter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's too. there's been a lot of dead quarters yeah, in, in in series this year, but now I, I think there's a lot of success there. And then as far as mismatches in favor of USC. I mean, well, you know, London I mean, yeah. trying to keep the ball out of London's hands is a, is extremely difficult to do, but I don't know that there's a, maybe I'm missing something. Is there a mismatch at USC advantage they have over Notre Dame? Well, I mean, no, because Brian Kelly said we have an entire plan for Drake London. So if, if Notre Dame was going to go line up against Drake London, they would have a mismatch on every play one-on-one, but they will, they will not do that. They're not going to let London beat them. And I think it's uh, Ryan Abraham from uh, uscfootball.com, longtime visitor to Irish Illustrated, made a good point. He's like, all the receivers I kind of mentioned to him, Robert Woods and Pittman, they all had a uh, Batman and Robin. You know, he had right. yeah, Amadar St. Kind of. Brown, Marquise Lee. He yeah. doesn't really have one. They have inconsistent receivers other than right. London, but I have a really good stat we put in the uh, Kyle Hamilton London story. 64 catches. Pete, guess how many catches Drake London has on the right side of the offensive formation? Oh, geez. Um, it's lower what? than you think. 22? Right. <laughs> one. Well, all right. That is lower than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> he has one catch on the right side, and then and it's balanced otherwise. It's like huh. 35 and 28. It's I guess he doesn't go over there, including crossing routes and deep corners or anything else. But uh, It's really so, weird. It's a strange stat. I remember a long time ago when Notre Dame had the Michael Floyd freshman year, he caught like 38 of 48 passes outside the numbers. And I was like, there is no way teams aren't game planning against this at this point. You probably can't game plan that much against London because maybe he just tears you up on the left end of the middle, right? There's still a yeah. lot of room right there for him to do some damage. But I find that I find that interesting. And I think the mismatch would be if you get too much Drake London and, and someone smaller than him, like Clarence Lewis, right? I mean, at least Cam Hart has the physical size. To yeah, be yeah that's it. That's a, that's a really fascinating potential matchup there. But yeah, I, I I haven't seen a stat on how many times uh, London has been targeted. He's he has sixty four catches, and and their leading rusher, Keonta Ingram, has seventy four attempts. I mean, he just he has ten less receptions than their leading rusher has carries. That's insane. Which is which is unbelievable. Um, yeah, I you know I don't think there are any mismatches in USC's favor. I, I guess if I you know I just I think. No, USC's interior defensive line is small. They're not physical. They've been pushed around. I, I think Notre Dame can run the football again, but you know, we felt that way against Virginia tech and, and it, and it happened. So um, I think there's a possibility of that. Uh, other advantages that Notre Dame might have. They're, they're disciplined and USC isn't. How about that? <laughs> yeah. For, uh, I was just saying, I looked up Drake uh, London's targets, 88. 88, 64 catches, 88 That's targets. That's pretty good. So, and Abraham brought up uh, he leads the nation by almost almost double um, the next guy. 18 contested catches on 27 targets. 
And like the closest to him is nine from, from Oklahoma. And that, I mean, if you see film of him, that is not surprising at all yeah. because I, I don't even call you know, when, when you say 50, 50 ball, it's like two guys jumping up to see who can right. make the catch, but his ability, he comes back to the football so hard and strong with power. He's, he's really, really good. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how Notre Dame attacks it. All right. Uh, I have two questions I'm putting together. One from James Murphy, which is, how much will we see six foot four Kyle Hamilton in man coverage on six foot five Drake London? What trade-offs does Mark and Fre- Marcus Freeman face? And then I want to tie in a question from a familiar name from Oscar McBride, Nording's former tight end. He texted me and said, uh, Drake London, or I guess he tweeted, Drake London has been a problem all season. How can Coach Freeman and Nording's secondary slow London down? I don't see Hamilton I mean, much man to man. Do you, Pete, other than it, like in the inside the five yard line? I mean, I think he's just going to sort of shade him over the top. Like, yeah. I think I think this would be a week to go away from like the field boundary safety stuff. Um, just be like, which side is London on? Let's put Hamilton over there. <laughs> well, he's on the left. I, so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, if you know where London's going to be all the time, it becomes much easier. I, I don't know. I would, um, It would be interesting, maybe just in a fun, we get to enjoy it from the press box, if they just stuck Hamilton on London and just like, let's just see what happens. You know, I mean, the answer is they're going to do a variety of things because that's that's the game today. I mean, when Lou Holtz was head coach, you know, you lined up and tried to beat the crap out of somebody. The game isn't played that way now. So you have to do a variety of things. I, you know, I don't think Hamilton's going to line up one-on-one against London a, a bunch because yeah. I mean, you're, you're now you're, you're diminishing the value of the greatness of Kyle Hamilton. You're if he's chasing a receiver around, you're taking him out of the run game to some extent, many times. Uh, I mean, what do you, you know, Houston Griffith has been a, yeah, you there's know, an issue there. Yeah. I, I mean, do you, you have to use him as a guy that brackets London with a corner. I wonder if you'll see more Brown. Um, but the, I think Brian Kelly made a really interesting point about London is against Pittman, it was, we were going to take him out by having a safety over the top. Against London, he doesn't care about going over the top. So what no. do you, I mean, it'd be nice if Cam Hart, If speaking of Pete, when you said no boundary, no field for the safeties, I mean, Cam Hart is transitioned by playing both. Can Cam Hart shadow or just go play the left side mm. against against him as much just to physically match a, up with him? I think that's a really good suggestion. Yeah, they've I mean, been, just just length. There, so, yeah, yeah, no, I think that's a really good suggestion. And I and I, you know, I mean, Ryan Abraham, he should know about the receivers. I didn't right. get that. I didn't get that impression per se about Gary Bryant and Taj Washington. I've seen them do some really good things. Mm-hmm. I think Bryant's a guy that. You know, that's a tough matchup because he's working in the slot. Um, And so if you, and I know Brian Kelly talked about, you know, you can't, you can't let a game wrecker, you know, wreck your game. And that's what London is, but you, (laughs) you have to be careful because they they do have some other guys that can make plays. They absolutely do. I want to ask you both. This is a, this is like the most interesting matchup discussion we can have because Kyle Hamilton would obviously do a better job helping out against London than any any of the other safeties. This is not a, I'm not breaking new, not breaking new ground here, but think of all the other things that are going on on the field that Kyle Hamilton could take away. Exactly. As opposed to Houston Griffith or DJ Brown that cannot take away really any of those things, you know, all the time. You can't, 
I'm not mm-hmm. saying DJ Brown hasn't done some good things, but he's not taking stuff away. Right, you don't, you don't want to position. You don't want to minimize Kyle Hamilton's effectiveness all day. That's why you do you do a variety of different things. Yeah. If Houston Griffiths is on is on the field, he's got to be the guy, right, to bracket over the top. I, I what do you think happens when that ball's in the air with Houston? I Griffiths haven't. Seen, it'd be nice to, to to have seen him make some plays along the way to to do you know to incorporate that with some confidence. But I don't know. Look, if it was easy to take my and and remember we were talking about. Uh, Stanford, because I asked a question of Brian Kelly on Monday and, you know, do what Stanford did. He only caught four passes. And I, you know, I tried to watch as much TV footage of what they were doing with him, but it's, that's extremely difficult to do because the the camera angle doesn't allow you to do that. I thought Slovis was pretty inaccurate throwing to London that, that day or that night. Um, In fact, there was a pick six that was actually off London's hands because it was behind him. And it bounced off his hands and it was a, it was a pick six. So I, you know, I don't know. It's not easy. If it was easy, he wouldn't be catching 16 passes for 162 yards against Utah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, his, his number nine catches 130 yards against Colorado, 10 catches 165 against Oregon state. Uh, The, the numbers are 13 catches, 170 yards, Washington state. They're ridiculous. It's hard. It won't be easy. It'll be fun to see exactly what Notre Dame does. Next from Irish, John M. Rank the following predictions for most likely to least likely. Number one, Notre Dame wins in a route a la 2017. That was 49-14 for those of you at home. Notre Dame wins a close game, field goal or less, in a game that kind of comes down the last minute like the 2019 game did. That was Ian Book running it into clinch it, kind of. Uh, USC pulls off the upset in a close game, field goal or less. USC plays inspired and wins on the road, jumping on Notre Dame early, winning by two touchdowns which I guess would be a lot like the, the last time they won here uh, when they were nine-point yes. underdogs and Matt Barkley's team lit them up. All right. Would we all agree that number four is the least likely? That USC wins by two touchdowns? Well, as long as I can qualify number one, Notre Dame isn't physically imposing enough to go 49-14 both sides of the ball and absolutely destroy USC okay. the entire time. I would agree. But if you I, just, if you, yeah, so that's the least likely. But I, let's, let's make it a more realistic blowout. Then I agree with you. On number four, does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I get it, and I and I really think that. I mean, I think Notre Dame is going to win, and I, and I don't and I don't think it'll be by a field goal, but I don't think it'll be forty nine to fourteen either. Right. So that was, I, a, I think that was it, just a bloodletting. I mean, that was a yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. I mean, I think somewhere between one and two here. I, I, I and as far as man, I mean, USC pulling off the upset, I can. Notre Dame's just not good enough to assume that they're anything other than a toss up until we see something contrary to that. I I feel like three and one are the same likelihood to me. Like two is two is what I think will happen. Um, Hmm. But I don't, I don't see, I feel like one and three are just as likely to happen as as one is one as the (laughs) other. So your least likely is for the inspired game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's I think an inspired like game actually qualify. would qualify as three for USC. And by the way, these and I I don't want to. Anytime you win eight in a row on the road, it's an accomplishment. I don't want to diminish that. But they were favored in all eight games. Some of them, you know, some of them by just a couple of points, but they were on the road. So I mean, they they were favored and they should have won, and they they did. Which you know, Brian Kelly doesn't get credit for winning games that he should win, and USC can't win games they should win most of the time um 
So, yeah, I well, we'll get to our predictions uh, at the right. end, and you guys will have an opportunity. TJ from PA70. It would appear on the surface that an air raid style shootout might be USC's best path to victory. What is your take on the readiness of Notre Dame's offense and defense to win a higher scoring, quick pace style of game? Well, offensively, if you think about it, they won the highest scoring game you could have, really. They're 41 38. They've won two games where they had to score 32 points because the other team scored 29 points. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think if Notre Dame's offense can just build on what it did against Virginia Tech, they will score in the 30s, unless you're unless you're talking air raid craziness. I don't think Notre Dame's really well equipped to to go into games and score in 45 and 50 points. But I, I think Notre Dame will score on USC, and I think that that is absolutely what USC will try to do is attack Notre Dame at all costs. Yeah, I feel like Notre Dame is set to win this game in but in USC's style of play, um, which I which I would not I would not have said three weeks ago. Right. No, God. but I do think that they have gotten some things in order, both at quarterback and along the offensive line that, and the general health of Mike Mayer that will let them do this. So I don't, I don't think Notre Dame is going to try to play a slow down win at 27, 17 type of game. I think that they'll get out there and they'll run and throw it all over the place and, that is a smart thing to do this week. I agree. I, I think the playbook is as is as wide for Tommy Reese as it's been this year. I think there's a lot you can accomplish against USC, and there's nothing there's nothing to hold back, man. There's no reason to hold back. Just go for it. And I, and I think it's a big playbook for for Tommy Reese. Pin and pull asks who is the first freshman not named Tyler Butner to score a touchdown. Eggs. Diggs, right? Yeah. yeah Diggs. Gotta be Diggs. Yeah. I, you know, obviously before the Virginia Tech game, we would have been focusing on Colsey and Styles. Um, there's no evidence that they'll be targeted in the red zone. That's how I feel. They won't be targeted right. in the red zone. Yeah. Right. And then with, with the situation with Tyree Diggs, yeah, I think we'd, I think we'd all agree on Diggs. We do all agree on Diggs. CMU Pence fan, when did Michigan become the more hated rival to Notre Dame than USC? Good question. When do you think that, Tim, you know when that turned? Oh, I, sh- I, I, oh, here's the deal. <laughs> My age group has only seen like Notre Dame dominate USC, USC dominate Notre Dame. And then there's been, Notre Dame's been better since that happened, right? A little bit better. Notre Dame, Michigan for my entire life has been nuts back and forth, seven to seven, 10 to 10 in terms of game series, seven to seven, 10 to 10, 14 to 14, 15 to 15. Even Notre Dame gets them in 18, Michigan gets them in 19. It is back <laughs> and forth when Notre Dame had a four game winning streak, Michigan immediately ran off wins after that. It is proximity helps it. And I think it was the Lou Holtz era that turned it into the most hated rivalry. I know people hate USC and when USC was beating up on Notre Dame, but Notre Dame had a chance to win two of those, right? Yeah, Bush push, Bush push, and the last one, oh nine, Barkley. Like Michigan is just a hotly contested. Fans don't yeah. like each other. They're close to each other, and it's a close series. It's like you don't really know who has the better of it. I've always, well, not always. So a Notre Dame fan told me this like five or six years ago, and it just sort of stuck with me that the way that this is perceived is USC is our rival, Michigan is our enemy, yeah. and I was like, that's a really good way to put it. I think that's the perception of the Notre Dame fan base. I, I agree. I mean, certainly geographics 
play a role in this. I remember the first game with the renewal of the series. I, I was a, it was 78, right? And uh, yeah. I was a freshman in college. Um, and yeah, I, Tim, I think your point about just how hotly contested and going back, you know, games going yeah. back and forth and yeah, I, you know, and, and you also, you had the advantage of, you had Lou Holtz versus Bo Schembechler. I mean, what a, what an amazing head coaching matchup to really get things rolling. And Holtz had a, had a lot of success against them. It doesn't diminish the USC rivalry either. Like Pete, you made a great point about the hatred thing. Doesn't mean it's not a great rivalry. It's just that like, I don't think Notre Dame fans have any distaste whatsoever for USC fans coming here. Right. It's just like the well, only time some- you get it would be Michigan or Ohio state. I think for, yeah, there's some fans that say they hate USC, I, but I don't think that that's the general attitude and opinion toward it. And and for somebody that's seen a lot of Notre Dame USC games, I, my feeling has always been more of respect. And from a, I wrote in my tale, uh, my uh, Thursday thoughts today. Uh, when I saw US, when I was a kid, and USC came out of the tunnel, it scared the hell out of me. It was the same way. It was the same way when John Wooden's UCLA basketball team would come into Notre Dame and take the court. And it was almost like, and this was before every game known to man was on TV. It was almost, yeah. it was like mythical, like, oh my God, they really exist to see them up close. That, that really was the way you felt back in the day when you just didn't get an opportunity to see them, especially with them being on the West Coast. But they would you know, they would run in with their warmups or, or like Indiana basketball, you know, Bob Knight's team coming out of the locker room onto yeah. the Nordane court. I mean, it scared the hell out of me. I, and that's, that's just how, so my, my feeling about USC has always been one of respect. And I think, I think that's generally the feeling of Nordane USC fans. I think so too. And it's going to relate to this next question I'll ask, but I want Nordane fans listening to this and disagreeing right now to look, think to themselves don't you think it's good for Notre Dame that when USC is pretty good to good, I don't mean Pete Carroll, that's bad for Notre Dame and everybody else. <laughs> but yeah. like, it's, I don't think Notre Dame fans will ever say, man, I really hope Michigan wins all their games so they don't play Notre Dame. I mean, I no. think it's important for Notre Dame to have USC be a program. I agree. And, yeah, and I just think people don't like Michigan enough to think that way. No, it's just, more, it's, I mean, it's just more fun when they're both ranked. Yeah. And that, right. you know, there's been a lot of games – in the last few decades where they haven't both been ranked and it's, it's there, there's something lost there. This one from Sam Manella. What's the most underrated Notre Dame USC game in history. I'm going with the 1989 game at South Bend. And I would like to announce to Sam Manella. I agree with him and I will buy him a beer if I see him. Cause this is the best call in the history of the podcast. Yeah. Good and call. I, great game. I apologize to Sam cause I really cut the question down, but uh, I knew you would agree with that O'Malley and and I do too. I, I, I mean, the, the whole Marinovich dynamics and Kolakowski and um, the fight, the fight, the fight. Yeah. The fight, which, fight. which everybody loves a fight as <laughs> Kyle Hamilton would say. God yeah. Bless him. <laughs> uh, I would, you know, I, and, and this is obscure and I don't think anybody else would pick this. And, and it was because of, first of all, it was my first time, time in the Coliseum in 1986. And secondly, Notre Dame was about to, about to end their first season under Lou Holtz at four and seven. And they made a tremendous comeback in the fourth quarter led by Tim Brown and Steve Berline. And Skip Holtz was on the field for one of Tim Brown's, uh, you know, for his, for his punt return. Um, that game was significant to me because that, to me, signaled, okay, Notre Dame is going to – they're going to go into 1987 
having come off this win and they're going to be a better football program. And within two years, they won the national title. But, but that was a being in a Coliseum for the first time and the, the impact of that comeback and win was really huge at the start of the Lou Holtz era. I will, uh, I'll throw out an oddball one since I didn't cover any of the Lou Holtz era or, or attend any of the games that Notre Dame's loss at USC in 2002 is a bit underrated because you just sort of assume the inevitable Pete Carroll era was about to happen. Um, and that was really the night where it kicked off um, that sort of sent, sent the series into a spiral the other way back to USC for really the rest of that decade. And I want to uh, encourage Irish Illustrated subscribers to read the forthcoming story about the Notre Dame rivalry in the words of Kyle Hamilton. Uh, it's not been up yet, but Tim Priester referenced it. Everybody loves a fight, as Kyle Hamilton said, and we do have a link to the great fight of 1989 in the tunnel with the police and the billy clubs, and that's everybody loves a fight. I'm with Kyle Hamilton. I want to see a fight. I'm advocating for a fight. You heard it here. Holy cow. <laughs> no, it, Kyle Hamilton said everybody loves a fight. He just meant there was about to be a dust-up his freshman year. And he's like, that's what I remember most, man. Right. We were about to get into it, and everybody loves that. He, was, he wasn't he was saying it quite as much as me. I actually want fights. J.J. Allwine asks, what players should we watch for to make an appearance this week after the bye week? Who is your pick for unused slash less important player that makes waves in the second half? There isn't always an answer to this question. Sometimes – especially with all the young guys that they've, they've played. But um, myself and an, another reporter tried to ask Brian Kelly about this today. I got nowhere with my question, uh, but he did throw out some names today of, of guys that are coming along. Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't, go ahead, there go ahead. isn't one, right? Like no, Prince Kali, no. we've sort of been waiting on Prince Kali for like a month. Um, so I guess I'll keep waiting on Prince Kali, but it, all the other guys that Kelly mentioned today, which are, I think none of them have maybe played more than a couple snaps. I don't like Philip Riley, Rocco Spindler, uh, Kahanu Kia. I don't, I don't see where there's a role for them. This I think, no, I would Frank, agree. D like, Diggs yeah. is Diggs is the only, I mean, you know, we saw some of him, but I mean, right. Diggs is the guy that's right at the, the top of the list for, yeah. you know, opportunities and playing time to expand. I think Diggs is the answer. Kali is the wish. And it's feasible only because J.D. Bertrand needs a rest, right? I mean, he has last two yeah. games. He's had good – he's had a heck of a first six games. His first four games were much better than his last two. He needs some time. Um, he mentioned Gabriel Rubio. But I think Brian Kelly sometimes answers these questions like a coach that is impressed that these guys are making strides on the scout team or that they are giving some effort yes. when they're up with the varsity. He doesn't mean that Philip Riley is going to start at corner. It's just not the way he No, thinks. no, yeah. no. And, and, you know, speaking of Prince Kali, he's played three games. So if they, if they're concerned at all about preserving a year, he's, he only has one game to play out of the next seven. I, I doubt, I doubt that they're concerned about that. Right. You know, I, so I mean, yeah. you know, if he's going to emerge, I mean, he, we, it would just be fun to see him play. It'd be fun. It'd, it'd be yeah. fun to see, you know, where, where the game where he can just get in there and play and not have to, that the coaches have to, you know, they don't have to stress about, you know, him having a busted play and, and something big happening. It's it's just a little difficult to do that right now. Yeah, this probably wouldn't be the week right away unless you get away, right? Yeah. Um, um, Rubio was another. Did we mention yeah. Rubio? That was another guy that Brian Kelly 
He's scout. That's, uh, that's more like scout team diversity, though, don't you think? I mean, yeah, I would yeah, think so. There's yeah, there's no – I, I don't playing. see where you can find a single rep for him. Well, other than Lacey's, Lacey's banged up. I, you know, I just wonder if – I meant yeah. to ask about well, Lacey's playing those. He wouldn't play those. Yeah, that's a yeah. – and I was a, yeah. a guy more likely. And we – in the spring, I mean, they were – there were plans about him being on the goal line defense, and then he had yeah. the bad the bad ankle sprain in the preseason, and we just haven't seen him. That's a guy that I, you know, I'm surprised that I, again the competition, the scoreboard has to cooperate for for some of these guys to get in yeah. the game. Dashing Domer, do you think one of the underclassmen QBs will take the necessary step up for 2022, or do you think they will have to dip in the transfer portal again to contend, and we will contend with a relative mess all next season? I think, I mean, that remains to be seen. Now that you lost Clark, you need to, you probably need to recruit another quarterback in this class, whether that's Walker Howard or not. That that's a that's a big if. But I would think that, and you guys chime in on this. I wouldn't think that that's something that you want to do every year. I know Lincoln Riley thrived with it, but to to bring in a quarterback every year wouldn't you I, I would think that you would rather you would much rather develop guys which is going to be difficult to do at the quarterback position with the transfer portal and the the readiness of of, yeah. of every quarterback ready to change change schools yeah i Logan Lincoln Riley's bringing in guys that he turns into Heisman Trophy winners so if Notre Dame can do that awesome like do that like it that, hasn't happened so far that would be totally <laughs> fine um I don't, they're just in a tough spot. Um, I, you know, it so much hinges on like what Drew Pine wants to do. Like if Drew Pine can stay and compete and then stay, even if Buckner is the guy, then great. You definitely would not go into the portal at that point, right. but that is a, oh, that is, that's a big, big risk, a big ask right now. You, it's tough for Notre Dame because if you're going to go in the portal, you got to get them in right away. Like they did with Cone. Um, if you asked this question last year in January when they got Cone, nobody would have said they're going to go in the portal again next year. They would have said Tyler Buckner. This is for Tyler Buckner, the one-year placeholder for Tyler Buckner. So it's really how much recent Kelly think they know about Tyler Buckner and what he can do in the next nine months. The problem is they don't have nine months to decide it. They have three, right. you know, it's, but I am, I think I'm in the minority. I don't see Drew Pine transferring until he graduates. Well, I, um, he's, he's you might have some intel on that, Pete. I mean, I, I think like he seems to be the kind that would, you know, stick it out, but maybe you have some intel on that, Pete. I, you know, not um, so I wrote a story today on how Reese develops quarterbacks. And in I talked to Ian Book for like a half hour on Tuesday night, I think. And we were, we were just sort of talking about how um, he said he's really close with Drew Pine. Like they talk two or three times a week. Uh, Book also mentioned he's not. He's not heard anything from Pine that is like, I should be playing. I'm out of here. And then um, this is, a, I'll just read a quote from book, which I thought was interesting. Uh, sorry. He was talking about guys sticking around. He's like, I think a big thing is just believing in yourself and that you were going to get your chance. The power of the degree at Notre Dame that helps guys stay there. I wanted to get that degree so bad. If I look back, say I didn't even play, I would have got that degree before I did anything else, meaning graduate transfer. Mm -hmm. Damn, I know because like, damn, I know what this degree does. I got to get that degree. And I think that Pine probably is more like that than like somebody like Brendan Clark who leaves in the middle of the season. But that, again, for Pine, if he can graduate in three years, he was an early enrollee, super smart guy. 
next year is the third year. So maybe it's maybe it's a closer to like a toss up of what you want to do. You could graduate transfer and still have two years of eligibility. Yeah. He will, yeah, he, he'll have three years of eligibility. Last year is a free year. He played. He gets that year if he really wants it. I know guys aren't going to stay. I know they're not going to stay six years, but I'm just throwing it out there. A quarterback yeah. might stay six years because this he is, could have a whole career. But. This is going to, I mean, every, not every, but most FBS schools are going to be facing this situation with quarterbacks. They, yeah. they just will. And so you, you just have to, and Steve Angeli's coming in. Fortunately, he's having a, he's like, he's having a really good senior year. Walker Howard's coming in this weekend. They love Dante Moore. You just have to keep recruiting quarterbacks. I don't think you can ever stop recruiting quarterbacks because no. because of the nature mm. of the position one can leave at all times. Question from Records 33 Hot. What's the latest pulse from inside the Goog on the prominent uncommitted 2022 and 2023 prospects? Does Nordin feel it has a chance with Walker Howard? The timing is nice for Walker Howard. Yeah. Pete, I, you know, I mean, I, just some of the guys that are coming in. So let's start with the guys that are verbally committed. Our name, Brennan Vernon from the class of 2023 uh, guys coming in next year, Tobias Merriweather, Joshua Burnham, Nolan Ziegler, Eli Raritan, who's just tearing it up. Niuafe Tui Alamaka is coming in. Uh, and then the class of 2023, Cedric Irvin, um, those are the committed Avery Johnson, the quarterback in 2023 is coming in. I, you know, I know Nwankwa is coming in, right? He's still coming in this yes. weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anthony Lucas is an interesting name on that list. I don't, you know, Notre Dame certainly hasn't been trending with him, but. Um, Notre Dame expects Billy Schroth to be here. Um, Billy, Billy, Billy Schroth is, I, I mean, I can't. I don't want to overestimate this, which I'm apt to do sometimes. He's the best. He's the best offensive guard. I'm not saying he's as good. He's the best offensive guard at Notre Dame since Quentin Nelson, if they were to get him. Uh, I still love Rocco Spindler. I would put Schroff ahead of him, absolutely. And I, you know, and Fisher. And oh, Fisher, would. Fisher's a. T- I would. Yes. Yes. Fisher's a tackle now. Uh, I underestimated him. I didn't think he'd come in and play. I thought he'd be good. I didn't think he'd come in and do what he did right away. But I, I love Billy Schroth, and I think to be able to wrestle him away from Wisconsin-Ohio State would be massive, absolutely massive. Yeah, I, Notre Dame feels pretty good about that yeah. right now. You know, two weeks ago, they did not at all. Right. Um, they thought that that was, that was going That's, to Wisconsin. But, I mean, and I'm sure that because of everything that he's gone through, I'm sure when he verbally commits, that'll be solid. But this also has the feel of one of those, it's like, damn, you're not going to you're not gonna trust it till he puts his name on the paper in December. Right. I mean, it is, if Wisconsin was sitting here at 6-1, and one, maybe it'd be right. a little different. Like, Wisconsin is definitely – on a downward trajectory at the moment. So maybe that helps a little bit, but like it's what Wisconsin, I think has three offensive linemen from the state that are ranked in like the top 175 overall. And like Shroff is actually the third of the three and Wisconsin's probably going to get the first two. So, you know, don't cry for Wisconsin on offensive linemen, I guess, but Shroff would be just, man, that would be a, it's like, he's a really good player at a position. Like you wouldn't think Notre Dame would be desperate for guards, but like, they kind of are. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, and guards it? are under guards are ne- guards are underrated. I mean, they're just not rated as high a- as tackles. I I think this is a you know, it's all relative. I think it's a top he's a top 100 talent. He's like at 165 or something. I think 
if he wasn't a guard, you know, all other positions are different. I think he's a top 100 talent. You know, I just so happened to have been writing about some guard and tackle prospects for the 2022 season. So I have it in front of me. Um, so your tackles prospects coming up, you have, of course, Alton Fisher and Tyler Chan coming in. You would have Caleb Johnson uh, and then Carmody and Baker. Now people say, well, Carmody can move to guard. I mean, he's undersized. <laughs> you're not, you're not, if you're moving to guard, you're looking at Zeke Carell size again in there, right? The guard. Nah, he's, long, he's longer. He's longer. He's longer. I, he's could, longer, I feel like he's much bigger than Zeke Carell yeah. and could carry more weight. He'd carry more weight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the guards, though, would be Christophic, Spindler, Corella, Garter Center, Tonona, Garter Center, and I guess Quinn Carroll, because he can't stick out there at tackle if you have all these tackle prospects, right? Yeah, so you exactly. are right. You are right about the need for a guard. I mean, that is... That's weird. It, it's like, strange, but it is total. When you yeah. say the names, you really need it. Yeah, we're going to wrap up... Uh... Before before we get to predictions, we'll wrap up with one more question from some guy named Michael Birch. I don't know. You guys may have known who he was at one point. Uh, Michael Birch asked, when was the last time any of you watched a Notre Dame football game from the stands, and what was it What was it like? Michael was um, Notre Dame's sports information contact with Notre Dame football. Love him, miss him with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, and I know that he, he still tunes in to every now and then to see what us goofballs have to say. Well, he said he's asking for a friend, so I assume he's coming in to watch the game, right? Yeah, that is correct. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when actually, was – I mean, I – a weird you know. one. Yeah, you guys. I have a very strange one. Uh, I was three years into covering them for Scout. I contacted Notre Dame for a 2011 home game that was going to introduce music to the stadium, had about 50 recruits coming, and I had an idea to sit in the stands for two of the quarters – sit in the press box for one so I could get some work done and be on the Notre Dame sidelines for the fourth quarter. And Notre Dame did me a solid. I sat by the tunnel where they come out in the student section. Um, remember seeing Skylar Dickens there, by the way, I sat in the uh, USC, uh, USC section. I went upstairs just in time to see Dane Chris fumble and the ball go 99 yards the other way. <laughs> and then I was on the sidelines fourth quarter. And uh, this story, if you don't remember it, doesn't exist because Notre Dame got destroyed and the atmosphere story no longer mattered to be printed on uh, the old Irish <laughs> eyes at the time. <laughs> and I basically wasted my time, but I did see Aaron Lynch, Pat Brian Kelly on the head and get immediately ripped off the field after that happened. Really? Kelly tried to tell Lynch got a personal foul. Remember they were coming in the uh, USC would just score driving down and Notre Dame kind of seated the game. And Lane Kiffin famously was like, what's he doing? You can see it on the screen. What's he doing? Yeah. Um, Lynch got a personal foul. Kelly called him over, talked to him, and sent him back out. And then Lynch tapped him on the head. And Brian Kelly got Darren Lynch's butt on like the field huh? so fast. You have no oh my BK, BK didn't yeah. like that, huh? No, that did not go well. Pete, I don't know how many games you, you how many games um, have you seen inside in the stands at Nordham Stadium? Probably not so a whole lot. Technic, I, I guess you could say a technicality. Like I shadowed Chris Sims before the for oh, around yeah. the USC oh, game right. two years yeah, ago, yeah. which was fun. So that was just down on the sidelines. But the only game I've attended in Notre Dame Stadium as a like a non-working person uh, was Texas A and M in two thousand one. Um, I was I was visiting my uh, girlfriend now wife, who was a first year law student there, and I. How did it feel? I did not wear any sunscreen and half of my face was like that. a lobster, yeah. lobster red afterwards. <laughs> Didn't feel very uh, good. 
Yeah, I remember, the, uh, I remember fans chanting, we want Nebraska, which at the time was like, ooh, don't say that. And now you're like, I can't believe anyone would ever be scared of Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, well, it, it's been so long since I sat in the stands at Notre Dame that I don't remember when it was. It was, I mean. <laughs> oh, no, well, as a student. You know, yeah, you no, any, uh, Georgia, yeah. Georgia Tech, my last game as a senior, but the, it was 1981. Now, you know, there. The 1989 game against Miami, I, I was at the back of the crowd. There wasn't enough room in the press box, and so they had tables set up right at the back oh, of the crowd. Oh, so, I mean, there are a lot of times, like, you know, Clemson 2015, yeah. we were – I mean, we were – we could reach out and touch the fan right in front of us. That's yeah. how close we were. Do you, do you remember the guy in front of us said to us what he said to the three of us? Yeah. No. So, <laughs> he turned around. This is like the end of the game. We've been there the whole time. And, you know, they were all drinking and having – I mean, we were right next to the fans. Priest, you make a good point. They were like – we were on top of the fans in yeah. the open air press box. He turns around and he's like – apologizes. like, oh, I didn't know you guys were working. <laughs> it's like we have laptops. What, what do we do? We're not, we were we're not drinking up here. What, what's going on? Yeah, we're passing beers around yeah. and – Anyway, we've run long, but let's let's jump into the predictions, guys. Priester, you have to tell your quick story about the time you were in the stands for the uh, Green Jersey uh, game and how you felt and how you felt that day and why. I went to the Steve Miller concert the night before, and I was so hungover that I when they came out in green jerseys, I you know I was would have been confused anyway. But <laughs> it was a it was a rough it was a great day, forty nine nineteen. But the Steve Miller concert got the best of me. Predictions? <laughs> I, uh, I um, name in this game for a bunch of the reasons we talked about in segment one. I think that USC's weaknesses are weaker than Notre Dame's weaknesses. Like, and I think Notre Dame's offense will be able to take advantage of that. I think Notre Dame will be able to get its stuff together offensively against a team that is just asking to have your stuff get together against them. So I think it's going to be an entertaining high scoring game. Um, I, I would expect USC to look half decent on offense as well. Um, I, they will figure out a way to match up DJ Brown or Houston Griffith on Drake London at some point. And that will be a, that will certainly go USC's way, but I, I think I'm going to settle on Notre Dame 38, USC 30. Um, so just to cover um, just a little bit of tension in the fourth quarter, but um, I, I do like Notre Dame to, to win this game and, and look good doing it. I'm right there with you. I thought you were going to say the same thing. Thankfully you did not. Uh, I'm in the same range, 38, 27. Um, I keep pulling USC scores up from like 21 to 24 to 27. Cause I agree. There's, they're going to find a way to uh to get drake london on someone that's not named kyle hamilton and i love cam hart but that's a tough matchup for cam hart too even though i'm advocating the cam hart shadow move but i am in that 38 27 range i've pulled usc score up a bit of late and remember back in august i said this would be the highest scoring game i can't back down too right. much on that yeah. well not surprisingly i'm in that range uh again we seem that we seem to be in in line with each other making these predictions i, I will have my Pick in tomorrow's preview, and Tim O'Malley will uh, will will get together before the game for our instant analysis. Looking forward, Tim, to meeting some of the 4HL uh, members right. of Virus Illustrated before the game outside the stadium. Northern USC on Saturday. Thanks for joining us. This has been Irish Illustrated Insider.